Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb is to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light of a thing that you should be a ser- my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, peop- the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, his Holy One, to the one despised, abhorred by the nation, the servants and rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in the time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to appropriation the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed the ways along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind or sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a a road, and my highway shall be raised up. Behold, these things shall come from afar. And behold, these things, these are from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exude, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Saints may be seated. This morning, I just have two points I would like for us to consider. The first is the preservation of the servant. The second point is the victory of the servant. The preservation of the servant. And number two, the victory of the servant. Now, if you would, uh, please bow your head and pray with me. Our great God and Father, we thank you for bringing us here by your grace and providence. We ask, Father, that you and you alone will be the focus of our time together. That in light of all the distractions that might be here in this building, that might be in our minds, we pray, Father, that you will blot out all the things that will cause us to not focus on you, not focus on your servant. We ask that your Holy Spirit will be with us for this time that we are together, that corporally we will gaze and we will look upon Jesus Christ, who is the author, perfecter, and finisher of our faith. Help us by your Spirit understand who your servant is and the victory that your servant has, and thereby we have victory in him. Help us, Father, uh, give us great 
minds and give us eyes and ears to see your servant and the glorious beauty of all that he is. So we invite, we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We now are in Isaiah chapter 49 and Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 42, and if you were here last week, you uh, might remember that Isaiah 42 is the first of the four servant songs of Isaiah. And these servant songs of Isaiah really depict for us the person and work of Jesus Christ. They foretell who the Messiah will be and what he will do. And what we saw in Isaiah 42 is that the servant will be one who will be a servant. He will be, yes, God's servant. He is the servant of the Lord, but he's also our servant. He is our helper. But when we considered the servant of Isaiah chapter 42, we saw that one of the main features of this servant is that he will be a compassionate servant. He will be a gentle servant. The text says that he will not uh, allow his voice to cry aloud in the street. That he will be soft with his words. That he will not kill people with his words. He will not be aggressive with his words. And then we saw those marvelous, glorious verses where it says that a bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. That the servant will not come. And break those reeds who are already broken, who are already bruised. But he upholds every single bruised reed whom he comes for. We are those faintly burning wicks that Jesus Christ comes and he, he uh, comforts. He protects us. He does not allow us to or allow our aflame to, to be burnt out. He is compassionate. And what we have before us this morning is another chapter, Isaiah 49, that speaks of the various features of the servant, who the servant is, and what he will do. All in all, what this sermon is about is about Jesus Christ and him alone. It's about what he will do for us, but how he will accomplish what he will do for us. So saints, let's consider the first point, and that is the preservation of the servant. The preservation of the servant. And as we open the second servant song of Isaiah, you might feel a sense of deja vu. You might feel a sense that we have been here before, like we've dealt with this passage before and we've done this already. Because the second servant song begins very much like the first servant song. If you remember last Lord's Day, chapter 42, in fact, if you want to just turn there, you can. Uh, Chapter 42 of Isaiah begins with God the Father saying, Behold my servant. That's how chapter 42 begins. It says, Behold my servant. It is the Father who is calling our attention to his servant. And in verses 1 through 4 in chapter 42, we saw that it is the Father only who speaks. It is the Father who is the mouthpiece. But as we turn to the second servant song, we see that 
there's a change in tone, that there's a change in the voice. We begin chapter 49, not with the father's voice, but with the servant's voice. It is the servant in chapter 40, 40, uh, 49 who speaks. And he begins his speech just like his father began his speech back in chapter 42. Consider the first words of verse 1, if you would. It reads, listen to me. Listen to me. It was the father in the first servant song who grabbed our attention with one word, behold. And here in the second servant song, the servant grabs our attention with one word, listen. In the first servant song, we are commanded by the father to open our eyes, to witness something, to gaze upon something. In the second servant song, we are commanded to open our ears, to listen to someone. Christ here is commanding us to open our ears. It is the servant of the Lord who's commanding us to listen to listen carefully to all that he has to say. But the glorious thing about Isaiah chapter 49 is that we aren't the only ears that are to be inclined to the servant's words. We aren't the only ones that are to listen to the servant. But look at what verse 1 says. It says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. It's the servant that's calling to the coastlands. He's calling out to the people to the ends of the earth, people who are afar. This is a universal call from the servant. Every person from every tongue, every tribe, every nation is to take heed to the servant's words. The words of the servant aren't to reserve just for a certain people group. But his words are to be heard by those who live at the very edge of the earth. Those from New York all the way to Arvin are to take heed to the servant's words. But what is the servant wanting us to hear? He's telling us to listen to him, but what is he going to say to us? What is he calling our attention to? And in verses 1 through 3, we see that there's three features about the servant that we are to pay special attention to. Three features that the servant is wanting us to see about himself. The first feature is found in verse 1, which is the servant's calling. The servant's calling. Verse 1 says, The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. Saints, when we think about who Jesus Christ is, it's of error to think that once he turned 30 years of age, and the moment he was baptized, he became our mediator, and he became our Messiah. That the moment he turned 30 years of age, he became our prophet, priest, and king. It's likewise of error to believe that the moment Jesus Christ was on the cross, the moment the nails went into his wrists and went into his feet, that then he became our substitute. Then he became our savior. Friends, Jesus Christ 
never became our Messiah. Jesus Christ never became our prophets, priests, and king. But rather, from the very womb, he was our Messiah. From the very womb, he was called to be our Savior. From the moment of conception, in the virgin's womb, Jesus Christ was our mediator. And verse 1 really is highlighting that fact. Again, it reads, The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. As the Holy Spirit overshadowed the womb of the Virgin Mary, there was a process of divine equipping going on. There was something happening in the Virgin's womb. At the moment of conception, the very second that Mary became pregnant, the Holy Spirit sanctified the human nature of Jesus Christ. At the very moment of conception, Jesus Christ was being set apart as holy, harmless, and undefiled. There was no sin attaching to him. At the moment of conception, in the womb of the virgin, the Holy Spirit was preparing our Lord to be our Redeemer. That is mind-blowing to think about. In the virgin's womb, there was much more than just a simple pregnancy going on. There was much more than just a simple baby being formed. But he was being equipped to be all that we needed him to be for our salvation. In the womb of the virgin, the Holy Spirit was prepping, was preparing our Lord to be our prophets, priest, and king. And from the womb, all the Orthodox have confessed that the eternal Son was the Christ. In the womb, it wasn't simply a human nature that was in the virgin, but it was the eternal Son. It was the one who was very God of very God, who was consubstantial with the Father. From the moment of conception, he was the Christ. Before the Virgin Mary was one month pregnant, before the Virgin Mary was days into her pregnancy, seconds into her pregnancy, the eternal son was Emmanuel, God with us. From the womb, Jesus was called to be our Savior. But saints, we can stretch this truth out even further, can we not? Not only from the womb of the virgin was the Lord our Savior, but from the womb of eternity, the eternal Son was our Savior. From the womb of eternity, the Lord was our prophet, priest, and king. From the womb of eternal purposes and eternal decrees. From the womb of God's uh, foreordination and God's predestination. The eternal son was foreordained in the purposes of God. In eternity past, the eternal son was predestined to be the redeemer of the elect. Before the foundation of the world, even before the eternal son's assumption of a human nature, he was our covenant head. And friends, this is of great news, is it not? Because it tells us that God's plan of salvation was not a response to Adam's fall in the garden. When Adam fell in the garden, that God in heaven was not scratching his head, scrambling around, trying to figure out ways to undo what Adam has done. But rather, it was an answer 
to the problem of sin. God's answer to the problem of sin is found in His eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And this problem of sin, or rather this answer of sin, this plan of salvation finds its origins in the days of eternity. The servant goes on to say in verse 1, From the body of my mother, he named my name. The one who was called from his mother's womb was the eternal son of the eternal father. The one who Mary gave birth to was very God of very God. He is the second person of the blessed Trinity. But God gives him a name. The angel tells Joseph in Matthew 1, 21, she, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. His name shall be called Jesus. And friends, there couldn't be a more fitting name for our mediator. He is the savior of the world. He is the only savior of the world. He lives up to every word that defines his name. Others are named after great men who might do great things in their life, but saints, Jesus Christ is the only one in history that lives up to every single letter of every single word in his name. His name wasn't picked in a Hebrew baby book. He wasn't named after his father or after another great man, but rather his name was chosen in, in the ages of eternity. His name was foreordained by God. His name comes from the divine mind of God. The servant is Jesus Christ. That is who he is. That is what he was named. From the very womb, he was the Christ. From the very womb, he was the Savior of men. From the very womb, he was Yes, Mary's seed, but he was also the seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. He truly was from the woman that will come and deliver that death blow to Satan. And as we move on to verse 2, we see another feature of the servant. Verse 2 speaks of the servant's preservation. He says in verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He made me a polished arrow. What vivid language we have before us. Here the servant alikens himself to a weapon that's been prepared for battle. It's the servant that's saying that I am this sharp sword. I'm this polished arrow that's been prepared for 30 years for battle. The Father by the Spirit prepared his servant to speak words that are like a sharp sword and like a polished arrow. It was God who raised up his servant. Yes, Mary and Joseph did a great job in raising up their their child Jesus, but it was ultimately God the Father who raised up his son. And isn't this true of the young life of Jesus Christ? As a young boy... Why did Jesus study the scripture so hard that he did? Because he was preparing himself to be a preacher. He was preparing himself to be a prophet. He was preparing himself to speak the very words of his father. 
He was preparing himself to speak with accuracy and authority. At age 12, he amazed the rabbis at the temples by his questions and understanding of the Old Testament. I'm sure they asked, where did this young man get this knowledge from? How is he asking us these questions as if he has studied for all eternity? At age 30, when Jesus finally stepped on the scene, what was the constant theme of the people toward Jesus? Yes, they loved his miracles, but they were amazed at what he was saying. How did this man get this teaching? Where did he learn this stuff from? Because not only did he know the scriptures, but as all of the great preachers in history passed, he was able to apply the scriptures. He was able to apply the scriptures by pointing to himself. His words were a sharp sword. His words exposed sin, while at the same time, softening men's hearts. The reason is because his father, by the Spirit, was preparing his servants for 30 years. For 30 years, every single morning, every single afternoon, every single night, the father, by the Spirit, was pouring more grace upon his son. He was equipping his son. He was preparing his son. Every day, God was polishing his arrow. He was sharpening his arrow. He was making his arrow sharper and so his arrow can be more accurate when he finally delivers his words. They will hit its intended target. That's what a polished arrow does. It hits its intended target. But ultimately, what the father was doing for 30 years was he was preparing his servants for battle. The father was preparing his servants for a war. A war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. A war between the flesh, the world, and the devil. And this is what verse 2 is really getting at when it says, In the shadow of his hand he hid me, and in his quiver he hid me away. In other words, the Lord had a servant up his sleeve. The Lord has had a servant up his sleeve. When the servant, our serpent, thought he won in the garden, when he thought that he disrupted God's plans, it was the servant that was the Lord's secret weapon. I remember when George Bush was in office, you might remember, he would, he said that uh, in Iraq there's weapons of mass destruction that were being uh, secretly held in secret places. Well, I don't know if we ever found the weapons. You have to ask Ray that. But what we see in our text this morning is that there was a weapon of mass destruction that the Lord was preserving for 30 years. Up his sleeve, the Lord had one who would disrupt the plans of the serpent. One who would disrupt the plans of sin and death. For 30 years, tucked away in the little town of Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? God was preserving his servant. For 30 years, the servant lived in obscurity. He walked on this earth as a nobody. But friends, it was in those 30 years where Jesus Christ was preparing himself for the hardest three years of his life. 
the servants prepared himself for 30 years in order that in, in three years he may be our prophets, priests, and king. He may be our mediator. He may die for us. But what was the purpose of such preservation and calling? What was the purpose of the Lord preserving his son for 30 years? Verse 3, And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Here the servant is referred to as Israel. Because he represents everything Israel was supposed to be. Where Israel failed, Christ remained faithful. Jesus is the true Israel of God. He is the seed that was promised to Abraham. He is the heir to the throne of David. In him, God will be glorified. So what we've seen in this point, saints, is that Jesus is God's called servant. Who through his life was preserved by God in order that he may glorify God to the fullest. But the question that arises from this text is how will God's people, how will the people of Israel, how will the world respond to this servant? He's being preserved for 30 years. But how will the people respond? Will the servant's preparation be worth it? Let's consider the second and last point, which is the victory of the servant. The victory of the servant. Again, the question is, will the servant's uh, preservation be worth it? How will the people accept the message of the servant? Will they accept the message of the servant? The servant says in verse 4, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Friends, when we consider the ministry of Jesus Christ, without knowing all that we know now, it does seem like his ministry was a failure. I mean, compared to the great success that certain ministers and even uh, evangelists have today, Jesus in many ways failed as a preacher. In fact, there was one preacher, big preacher of a big church, popular preacher, I should say, who posted on his Facebook that on Easter Sunday, in quotation marks, it's not Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, over 232 people came to know the Lord because of his sermon, because of the gospel being preached. Amen to that. But when we consider the ministry of Jesus Christ, it was far from the great success that that minister had. Jesus Christ went back to his hometown. He preached one sermon, and after he was done, they wanted to throw him off the cliff. Compared to the great success that many of us evaluate other ministers by, I think it's fair to say that Jesus Christ, although he had, yes, success, but when we consider it as a whole, There isn't much fruit that came from the ministry of Jesus Christ while he was here on earth. The people only wanted him for his miracles. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples couldn't understand him. And as a servant evaluates his ministry in verse 4, he's saying, what am I doing? Why am I laboring with such strength? 
Why was I preserved for this? Why did God preserve me for this? Verse 7 amplifies this fact. It reads, To the one despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He was hated by even those who were of great stature. And what these verses teach us, saints, is that the ministry of Jesus Christ was no cakewalk. That Jesus Christ didn't glide through his life. He didn't cruise the glory. But he lived every single word of Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their face from, he was despised and we esteemed him not Christ in his life. When he considered his ministry, had every reason to despair. He had every reason to turn back. He had every reason to doubt his mission. But in the very same breath, as Jesus looks at how his ministry is doing, look at what verse, for, uh, the end of verse 4 says. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. He goes on to say in verse 5, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Although the people didn't honor the servant, he says that he's honored in the eyes of the Lord. And that's because at the very heartbeat of the servant, the very pulse beat of the servant, were the words of Isaiah or John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. All that the Father commanded Jesus throughout his life submitted to. He is the man of Psalm 48. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And in despair, the servants would lean on the words of Psalm 89, 21. My hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. I think about this in my own life as a minister, as a Christian and I think about the despair that I can have, that I do have from time to time. To be frank, the despair that I have when I come and this place is not filled as I think it should be. Or when I come Sunday evenings and we preach on Christology or on, on the church, this place is half empty. I do go, go through moments of despair. I do go through moments of disheartment. When I think about all the various churches that we have surrounding around us that are preaching false gospels, why hasn't God brought more people to this church? What is it about our message? What is it about me? But saints, in those times of despair, I must remember the words of Christ in verse 4, Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. No matter who shows up, my, my reward from God is not this place filled up. My reward with God is that I'm being faithful to the text. I'm being faithful to the will of God. I'm being faithful in the office that he has put me in. And the same with you, saint. Your reward is with the Lord. Not in how many people you can draw to Christ, although that is great. 
Your reward is with the Lord in him alone. And as we move on in these verses, we see that there's a change in tone. There's a change in the theme. That suddenly these verses take a sharp left for the better. Look at me at verse 5. It says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant and to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. Now stay with me here because these are some of the most glorious verses in all of the Bible. The servant says that he's the one who will bring Israel back to the Lord. That he's the one that will bring Israel back to covenant with God. But look at what the Lord says in verse 6. He says, it is too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. But I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I don't know if you caught this, but what the Lord is saying is this, is that it's too small of a thing. It's too little of a thing that you should be the savior only to Israel. It's too light of a thing. That's too easy. But I will make you as a light for the nations. That my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now let's remember that the servant has just evaluated his ministry. And based off of who's or who from Israel has come to accept his message, he says, what am I doing? I'm a failure. But friends... This is what makes God's plan of salvation so glorious. Salvation is much bigger than Israel. Salvation has always been much bigger than Israel. God's arm of salvation stretches beyond the borders of Israel. This is why Jesus says of himself in John 8, I am the light of the world. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The Apostle Paul also says in Acts 28, 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. But how will the Gentiles respond? They won't respond like Israel. The Apostle Paul says, they will listen. Where Israel rejected the Messiah, their own kind, the Gentiles welcomed him with open arms. Saints, this is the greatest news that one could ever hear. That salvation is not limited to just ethnic Israel. That salvation is not limited to those who are from the bloodline of Abraham. But salvation is for you, Gentile. Salvation is for me. Salvation is for all those who bow their knee to Jesus Christ. All those who are made in God's image. Salvation is for you. And you see, saints, the problem with Israel is Israel belittled the power of God. Israel belittled who God is, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. That is why God says here that it's too light of a thing that you just save little old Israel. But I will make you a light to the nations. Saints, we don't need to be physically circumcised 
For the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 2.11, And in Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Saints, we don't need to go to the temple for St. John tells us in Revelation 21, 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. We don't need to be an Israelite to be uh, saved. We don't need to be from the bloodline of Abraham to be his seed. For the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All of the promises of God are yours. Every single promise, every single rich or riches that God stores up for us in heavenly places is yours. The Apostle Paul sums this up best in Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, nor male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. So in light of this great salvation, how will the servant's ministry end? Will his 30 years of being prepared be worth it? Verse 7 through 12 explain to us how the servant's ministry will end. King shall see and arise. One thing I want to note here is kings don't arise. If there was, if, if the queen of England or the king of England was sitting down right here and we walked up to him or her, they wouldn't arise to shake our hand. But because of Jesus Christ, and when he comes, all kings shall arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. They shall sit up because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. But hear what. Hear what the Lord says, in that time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you, and I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to appropriate the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by the strings of water, he will, springs of water, he will guide them. Quick note there. What that simply means is God will take care of you. There is no wind that will blow you away. You will never be hungry. You will never be thirsty. No sun will strike you down. And I will make all of my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up with him. What that means is God will be your road. That God will be your highway. He will make your path straight. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west. And these from the land of Syene. What glorious verses we have before us, saints. And these six verses really are an expansion of that great promise of the Lord in Jeremiah 31. That I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Isn't that the greatest covenant promise that God gives to his people? That I will be your God. And you will be my children. So in closing, saints, what is the main point of this sermon? 
Well, the main point of this sermon is the main point of every sermon. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. It is the great salvation that we have in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And what we see in our text this morning is that for 30 years, the Father was preserving His secret weapon. For 30 years, the Father had a servant up His sleeve. But Jesus Christ wasn't preserved in an immaculate garden. He wasn't preserved where a place that had four rivers coming down, all meeting within one river. He didn't have a food to eat as Adam did. But rather, he was preserved in a world that was sinful, in a world that was dark, in a world that was cold. But the great question of the Old Testament, as Pastor Antonio has taught us, is where is the Lamb? Who will come and bring light to the nations. Well, saints, what we found this morning is that God's answer to this cold, dark, and sinful world is a servant. God's answer to those who are brokenhearted, God's answer to those who are infected with Adam's sin, God's answer to those who are bruised reeds, whose flames at any moment can be burnt out, is Jesus Christ and none other. And what is our response to such a great of salvation? How are we to respond? Consider with me the last verse, verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exude, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. Saints, if the mountains sing, If the heavens sing, then how much more should the proper recipients of God's salvation sing? We are to honor our Lord. We are to thank God for what he has done for us. For preserving such a servant who will come and comfort his people and have compassion on his afflicted. Let's pray.